This podcast is brought to you by Intel vPro. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Secretary of the Smithsonian, Lonnie Bunch III, joined the Post to discuss the legacy of Juneteenth, the commemoration of the ending of slavery in the United States. Let's listen. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for the Washington Post. Lonnie Bunch is the 14th secretary of the 19 museums and 21 libraries that make up the Smithsonian Institution. When he assumed that position a year ago this week, Bunch became the first historian to hold the post. But more importantly, Bunch became the first African-American to hold this prestigious post. And as, a, as impressive as that is, this is my favorite, factoid about Secretary Bunch. <laughs> he is the founding director of the National Museum of African American History and Culture, that jewel on the National Mall that was created in 2005 and opened in 2016. He wrote about it, about the whole experience in his book, A Fool's Errand, Creating the National Museum of African American History and Culture in the Age of Bush, Obama, and Trump. But today is Juneteenth, and on June 19th, 1865, Union troops arrived in Galveston, Texas, to announce that the enslaved were free. The meaning of this day and its significance in American history is front of mind this year, and there's no one better to discuss this than Secretary Bunch. Secretary Bunch, welcome. It's my, oh, it's my, my pleasure to see you as always. Yeah, we have a couple things in common. You and my mom share a, bir a birthday, but also we're both, we were both born in Newark, so it is great <laughs> to see you again after a long while. Um, Let's talk about Juneteenth. Everybody is talking about Juneteenth this year. The president told the Wall Street Journal that he, quote, made Juneteenth very famous. Nobody had ever heard of it. Meanwhile, on Capitol Hill, Senators Kamala Harris, of Democrat of California, and John Cornyn, Republican of Texas, are introducing a bill to make Juneteenth a national holiday. So Secretary Bunch, historian, why should Juneteenth be a national holiday? In many ways, Juneteenth is both a local story and a national story. It really is, in some ways, the second Independence Day in this country. For many people, Juneteenth raises the fundamental question of the power and impact of freedom and the fragility of freedom. So for me, it's an opportunity to both look back, but to look ahead to make sure that that notion of freedom and the fragility of it is always protected and celebrated. So Secretary Bunch, what lessons from Juneteenth um, could be applied today? I know, yes, you know, the fragility, the fragility of freedom and the fragility of democracy. But are, what are the direct lessons that we could take hold of today? I think, first of all, it's important to realize that what this day should remind us is that freedom wasn't given that in essence, African-Americans struggled, um, both in terms of self-liberation, um, running away, joining the army, that in essence, they fought for their freedom, wasn't just given to them, but it should remind us that the legacy is that we have to continually struggle to ensure that freedom is made accessible to us all. And I think that what I see more than anything else as a historian is that African-Americans have built on Juneteenth and used it time and time again to struggle, whether it was struggling against um, segregation, whether it was struggling against anti-lynching laws, or obviously struggling during the civil rights movement. So what this day should remind us is that we should celebrate the moment, 
but recognize that it's incumbent upon us to protect this freedom. Now, yes, celebrate the moment. But one of the reasons, probably the main reason why we are talking about Juneteenth, one is because the president's going is going to Tulsa. Uh, he was supposed to speak there today, but and I want to talk about uh, talk about that and Tulsa and the significance of Tulsa. But we're also talking about Juneteenth because of the protests that have been in the streets nationwide since the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis on Memorial Day. You have called protests the highest form of patriotism. So as a historian, how do you view these nationwide protests? Are we at a turning point in American history or something else? I think that clearly this is a moment that's part of a long historic arc. Right, that we can talk about the broken black bodies that go back from enslavement all the way to today. What I think you see, however, is an understanding that if you want to hold this country accountable, if you want to help this country fulfill its dreams, if you want to help this country live up to its stated ideals, then you've got to protest. You've got to push it. I mean, I'm always struck by the notion of Frederick Douglass, who once said that, you know, you can't appreciate freedom. Um, without agitation, without recognizing there's a struggle for it. And so what I'm seeing is a struggle in the streets to make a country better, to help a country finally get to that tipping point to say, how is this a great leap forward? How does this change the basic assumptions we have about what this nation is? And so there's a part of me that is hopeful and a part of me that's not. Okay, so I get the hopeful part. Expand on the part that makes you not hopeful. I mean, on the one hand, let me frame it this way, that I'm seeing changes that I never would have expected. I'm seeing police chiefs and police officers finally talking about their own culpability and what does this mean in the criminal justice system. I'm also seeing things that I never thought, like Aunt Jemima going away from the syrup <laughs> bottle. Um, but on the other hand, we've seen this moment before. Um, I worry a lot that this is not going to sort of become 1969. That in essence, uh, if you remember, after the long, hot summers and the changes of the civil rights movement, Richard Nixon is elected on a law and order platform. And that law and order platform turns people's attention away from civil rights, um, from finding fairness and freedom. And it really is a contributing factor to the mass, mass incarceration we see today. So I worry a little bit that this is a moment that could be um, taken away if we don't continue to push and see leadership at all levels demanding to say, this is the tipping point, this is the time. You know, you mentioned, you mentioned the, um, some of the things that are happening, particularly in corporate America, Aunt Jemima finally being retired, other things that corporations are doing. I believe I saw a report that, um, what, about half of the Fortune 100 have pledged something like in dollars to uh, African-American causes or causes related to social justice. Do you view those as r real is the word that comes to mind or fleeting? Is this just a feel good thing from your perspective that they're doing? And then as time goes on, uh, that commitment will go by the wayside. I think part of the key difference, let's say today from other moments when the corporate community contributed, is that you, not, you now have a much more diverse workforce in these corporations. You have people saying, well, what are we doing 
as a corporation to help make a country better? And what are we doing to improve our own sense of equity and fairness? So what you're seeing is, I think, something that is real. I think that it's too soon to tell, you know, will this last for, you know, years and years? But I'm optimistic that I'm seeing people put money to, to this, seeing people then make corporations begin to make changes. And I think that this is a moment of possibility. But again, this is a moment where we've seen in the past where after a period of time, the heat, the boiling heat um, comes down and people turn their attention in other ways. I do believe that the kinds of diverse people that I'm seeing contribute to this struggle, the fact that you're seeing a diverse group of people in the streets, you're seeing people from Europe um, saying that this is an issue for them as well as the United States, gives me hope that we can keep the heat up. Now, uh, we have a confluence of historical events here. We've got Juneteenth, which is today, but we're, as I was talking, mentioning before, Tulsa uh, and the president going to Tulsa. Talk about the significance of Tulsa in the American story, but particularly in the African-American story. Well, in many ways, Tulsa represented the sense of possibility that African-Americans believe coming out of slavery, um, coming into the 21st century. The Greenwood section of Tulsa was really a kind of, they used to call it the Black Wall Street. It was a place ripe with black businesses, a strong sense of community, a sense of economic prosperity, really an example of the best of what can happen to African-Americans. But it ran afoul, as always, of, of a rumor that an African-American uh, abused a white woman. The police came in. Um, it led to a kind of lawlessness attack where it destroyed so much of Greenwood. Hundreds were killed. Hundreds were chased away. Whole buildings were destroyed. What it really told me is that the Greenwood massacre is really the sort of yin and yang of America. On the one hand, it is the best of what happens to many black Americans in terms of creating this moment. But it's also said that it's run afoul of the sort of system and the notion of what, what black Americans should be able to do. And I think the pain of that is really something that um, people still feel. And especially because what it symbolizes to me is the insecurity of freedom, the uncertainty of freedom, that here you're doing everything you're supposed to do, and it's taken away from you. And, and uh, the, the Tulsa ma massacre is called the single worst incident of racial violence in American history. Talk about the significance of President Trump go wanting to go to Tulsa, well, he's going to Tulsa, but wanting to go to Tulsa and, and give a speech on Juneteenth in Tulsa. Well, I think that it is, my belief is always that everybody should be educated and that if this helped the president learn a little bit more about African-American history, so be it. But I also think it tells you that, that there's such a divide in this country in terms of knowledge, in terms of understanding the African-American experience, understanding African-American history. Um, this is a sacred time. Tulsa's a sacred city. And I think it's important for it to be celebrated as a place that, is, that was rebuilt that African-Americans didn't let the destruction stop them, um, but it also should be a cautionary tale about the limits of freedom. So, yes, everyone should, should be uh, open to being educated, should be educated. But as you wrote, as you wrote in your book, when then-president-elect 
Donald Trump went to visit the National Museum of African American History of Cult and Culture when you were you were there as the direct as the director. You wrote the president paused in front of the exhibit that dis discussed the role of the Dutch in the slave trade. As he pondered the label, I felt that maybe he was paying attention to the work of the museum. He quickly proved me wrong. As he turned from the display, he said to me, you know, they love me in the Netherlands. All, all I could say was, let's continue walking. There is little I remember about the rest of the hour we spent together. I was so disappointed in his response to one of the greatest crimes against humanity in history. Here was a chance to broaden the views and the understanding of the incoming president and I had been less successful than I had expected. That was in that visit was January 2017. Here we are, June 2020. Do you think the president has been open to being educated about um, history, but also the hard parts of our history? You know, I can't answer that. I don't know what he's been educated by. What I do think, however, is that this is a moment that is illuminating this history that's allowing everybody, forcing everybody to confront it. And I think that's really the powerful moment that um, to have a president try to talk about um, Tulsa, even though he knows he's learning more about it, I think it's important to realize that this is a moment for people to better understand our history. And that excites me. But Secretary Bunch, how how important is it that we have a to the national discussion and also our our historical arc that we have a president of the United States who time and time again shows that not only is he not uh, cognizant of of our history, but is willing to pour salt in the wounds of our history. I mean, we're used to having presidents who are, are uniters and in moments of tragedy and crisis bring us together. And yet there are plenty of examples of the current president doing the exact opposite. All I can say to you is that, look, this is a moment from my vantage point where the country is open to learning about its history, to confronting its tortured racial past. And anything that allows us to better understand who we once were um, and help us contextualize this moment and maybe use history, especially the African-American experience, to point us towards a better future is something that I'm very supportive of. So I want to dive in a little deeper on something you mentioned before in terms of the hopefulness that you see coming out of the nationwide protests, and that is having police chiefs around the country um, saying that they need to do better and acknowledging the pain and the frustration out there in the country. This is, you know, the, the relationship between the African-American community and law enforcement uh, has, broadly speaking, not been good and stretches all the way back probably to, you know, we came to these shores in 1619. Is it possible to change four centuries of a relationship in the span of, you know, one moment in time where people are in the streets demanding change? Do you know, all I can do is say that one of the great strengths of the African-American community is that they were able to dream a world anew. They were able to dream an America that was yet to be. And so there were people who would have never thought that slavery would end. 
people who believe that that legal legal segregation would always be there. So I've got to believe that change is possible. Um, I think that by looking at the way police chiefs are talking, but more importantly, by looking at the way communities are keeping the pressure on, I think there's hope for change. Um, so I have to believe that that's possible based on history. But mm-hmm. I think the jury's still out. So, Secretary Bunch, I want to go to a couple of questions that we got from, um, from viewers. This comes from Katie Cordes from Montana. And her question is, do you have any suggestions for making this relevant to middle-class white students in Montana, and then in parentheses, because I believe they really need to understand such important events. And of course, that she is referring to to Juneteenth. I think that there are institutions, educational institutions, museums around the country that have put their content online uh, digitally that allow people to understand better this history. Because I think that she's put her finger on what is an important point. And that is that this is not a story and this is not a moment for black people. This is a story and a moment for all Americans. And that the more Americans understand their past, understand their commitment, understand how we all are shaped by race, that gives us the kind of foundation to affect change. You know, that actually brings to mind uh, uh, something that we've heard over the years, which is um, from white Americans, you know, my family didn't didn't own slaves. Why? One, why should I care about that? That's in the past. Why is that relevant now? What's your answer to to that line of thinking? As James Baldwin said, we are trapped by traditions of history that we don't even know. Um, my notion is that everybody is shaped by the experience of slavery. Think about it. All aspects of American life, politics, economic life, cultural life was always shaped by slavery. In fact, economically, at the beginning of the Civil War, more money was invested in slavery than in business and railroads combined. And that, in essence, the traditions of enslavement, the treatment of black people in terms of the police and in terms of mass incarceration, has always been shaped by that history. So I think that everybody, regardless of race, is shaped in profound ways by the African-American experience. In many ways, what the African-American experience has pointed to us is that almost every time the country has made great leap forwards in terms of fairness, in terms of democracy, in terms of citizenship, African-Americans were embedded in that moment. So in some ways, we are all shaped by words from Frederick Douglass or Ella Baker. We are all shaped by the African-American experience every day of our lives. Um, the next question, it comes from someone whose name you will, you will recognize, and it comes from Khalil Gibran Muhammad <laughs> from New Jersey. He is a professor at the Harvard Kennedy School. He's also the former director of the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture in, in Harlem. His question is there on the screen, does the Smithsonian have a new education strategy to teach white Americans about the history of race and racism that reaches beyond the new museum? And that's the, the National Museum of African-American History and Culture, of which you are the founding director. Um, he's absolutely right. It had, had, we have to be broader than people coming to Washington. One of the things we've done at the Smithsonian, thanks to support of a corporation, Bank of America, we're able to initiate a major initiative called Race, Community, and Our Shared Future 
which is really about sharing digital access to our collections, to this history, creating virtual town halls that allow people of different communities, different races to come together to grapple with this. It allows us to bring the best scholarship of people like Dr. Muhammad, um, who can sort of help us talk about this on a national level, but then focus it locally. So I'm committed to making sure that the Smithsonian is a value at this very difficult time. And part of that value is drawing the broad educational resources that we have that we can help America better understand itself and understand this moment. Um, and then there's this question from James Pritchett from here in Washington, D.C., um, and more relevant to what's happening today, and that is how would the Smithsonian include the Floyd murder and aftermath into the museum programs? Well, first of all, it's important to remember that the job of a museum is not just to look back. It's the collect today for tomorrow. So many times in my career, there were stories I wanted to tell and museums didn't collect the material. So I'm committed to making sure that the Smithsonian collects this moment in, in, uh, in a myriad of ways. Part of it is making sure that we're part of the collecting of all those signs and drawings that were on the fence in front of the White House, but also that we're doing oral interviews with people on the streets. We're asking them to share their photographs, share the videos they're taking, um, to make sure that we understand how we do this. And we're doing things in a way, um, my own daughter is an ER doc in Chicago, and so she's going to share with us all the protective equipment that docs wore during those periods. So our goal is to make sure we can ensure that we can tell the story now, but that 50 years from now, other scholars will be able to interpret this and make it accessible to the public. Um, we're, we, we've got about eight, eight minutes, and, I, and I'm going to try to cram in as much as I can before we have to go. Let's come back to, to those demonstrations and the protests that have been happening around the country. A lot of people have been making mention of the fact that it's not just black people who are out there protesting, that a lot of these crowds are, are white, predominantly white, um, which to, to your point about being hopeful, it's what it makes, what's, makes me hopeful. Why do you think there is greater diversity um, of those taking part in those protests and also talking about issues of race today? I think part of it is social media, right? That people are able to sort of not just see this horrible murder of George Floyd, but have the kind of conversations about it, bring people together to demonstrate. But I also think that there is a profound sense that this is so wrong that people who care about America, especially younger Americans, feel this is their moment to make a difference. And so I'm very, I think I'm very hopeful because of that diversity. I'm also very hopeful because I see what's happening in Europe. And as you know, part of what happens in the United States is we want to be seen as the champion for the world. And so as Europe begins to criticize us, as Africa begins to criticize us, I think that's also going to have an impact on how we move forward. But I think that this is a wonderful example of how people who are younger recognize this is an opportunity to confront a wrong. And I'm moved by the fact that this has gone on day after day after day. Um, I remember protesting the war in Vietnam or civil rights demonstrations. They didn't go on day after day after day. This gives me hope that there's a commitment to keep the struggle, um, keep fighting until we make the changes we want. Now, Secretary uh, Bunch, um, this has been a tough time, um, not only for the country, 
but for African Americans in particular, and maybe I'm putting myself on the couch, it's been hard. It has been very difficult. This is your this is your line of work, cataloging and chronicling our history, African American history, but also American history, and a lot of it is dark. How do you, or how have you, been able to keep your head up? What advice would you give those of us for whom it's part of our job to chronicle this history? But there are some days when the burden, the load, just becomes too heavy. You know, there are days when you're in the midst of preserving this history that you pick up a book and throw it against the wall. Um, there are days where you recognize that this moment is not just professional, it's personal. You know, you remember your own interactions with police. You remember the moments when um, race tapped you on the shoulder. And so I think part of it is actually being candid with yourself about how you're feeling, about how this has shaped you. But also for me, where I take sort of strength is the resiliency of black folks. Um, the sense that people survived the institution of slavery, that people were able to sort of keep families, um, keep hope alive. And so for me, it's reaching back and saying that this is a community that shouldn't have believed in America, but believed in an America that didn't believe in them. And so that kind of sort of sense of stepping forward, drawing back really helps me. And the other thing really for me is I dip into my own family and I think about my grandfather who started life as a sharecropper and refused to let that define him and how his actions changed the trajectory of a family. So I find the hope there. And what do you say to white Americans who are out there in the streets, who might not even be in the streets, but who are trying to understand and figure out, how do I, be how do I become an ally, an, an, an effective ally, not just an armchair ally, but someone who actually can be a part of change? What would you say to them? I think, first of all, educate yourself to the struggle. Understand this history, understand this moment, but also recognize what are the things you can do in your local community, the involvement that you can, whether it's providing support, whether it's getting involved in local demonstrations, and that in essence, what I really hope people recognize is that this is a moment for all who care about America, who care about the best of America, this is a moment for them to step forward and find whatever way possible to be part of the struggle, but recognize that it's not a momentary struggle, that this is the commitment for the rest of your days to help make a country better. And finally, Secretary Bunch, um, as we've been discussing, President Trump is going to be in Tulsa. Uh, speaking tomorrow, apparently he's going to be speaking on race. Um, pull him out of it. In this speech tomorrow, what would you hope a president of the United States would say to the nation on the subject of race coming from the city of Tulsa? Well, I think what you want to hear from any leader is that, first of all, Race is central to understanding who we are, and we make a major commitment to addressing it. Um, you want people to recognize this is a story that shapes everybody, not just black people. And what you want is you always want hope. You always want somebody to help bring us together. And so ultimately, what I always want to hear is somebody who recognizes the challenge, the difficulty of grappling with race, but recognizes that that is a major part of what 
he or she as a leader needs to do as we move forward. And um, in the two minutes that we have left, how are you going to celebrate Juneteenth? <laughs> I am going to call my daughters and we're going to talk about family, because one of the things that I think is a legacy of Juneteenth has been the importance of family. You remember that as soon as people heard that slavery was over, many of them went to find their families that they had been separated from. So for me, this is a day to reflect on slavery, to recognize that slavery is something that is central to who we are and that we should not be embarrassed by our enslaved ancestors, but it's a day to revel in family. Secretary Lonnie Bunch, Secretary of the Smithsonian Institution, it is great to talk to you. Thank you very much for coming here. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be with you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.